Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Folks, it's Monday, which means it's time for old time radio with the classic Philip Marlowe. We have Lonesome Reunion, where Philip sees himself all on his lonesome in lonesome Arizona. Hot on the back of a bank robbery, with a dead body and Sansa and a black satchel of sorts being the only evidence Philip has. And your second episode, The Orange Dog, involves a blue-eyed gal, counterfeit plates, a very much dead and betrayed corpse, and of course, some kind of orange dog. Quite a puzzle, my friends. Pour yourself a cup of tea and join me, mates, for some remastered audio all the way from 1940. Enjoy. A corpse that wouldn't stay dead. A pistol with a silencer on it and a fortune in a black satchel. Spelled death for the big city boys when they finally got together in lonesome Arizona. Population, 802. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Lonesome Reunion. feet on a clear afternoon. You can see enough Arizona real estate to become an authority on the subject. And as I huddled around a circle of window aboard an American Airlines flagship and gaped like a two weeks with pay vacationer at the carpet of sand, stone, and cactus unrolling a slow inch at a time below, I was impressed. Also, I was thinking about a job which was providing both the switch and scenery and two crisp $100 bills, less the cost of a round-trip ticket from L.A. to the capital city of Phoenix. But then, at the thought of money, I stopped sightseeing and started to think about the work ahead and how easy it had sounded that morning in my office when Kay Gordon, who was something pretty and blonde but slightly tarnished for 28, had hired me, all in one breath. Marlowe, my brother Joe Gordon is in a room at the Granada Court Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. In one hand, he no doubt has his usual smelly cigar. In the other, a small suitcase filled with a mess of papers, all legal, all proper. You fly there, pick up the suitcase, fly back for that $200 cash. Yes or no? Yes, on one condition. The papers, do I get to see them? If I look, I go. All right, you look. Good, I go. Goodbye. That was the way it had started an hour after breakfast. Lunch was alone and at the airport, then it would wait until I'd seen Mr. Joe Gordon, a man who was willing to pay a lot for a little. My plane dropped out of the sky over Phoenix gently at three. At 3.15, I was in room 111 of the Granada Hotel and only 36 smelly inches away from the usual cigar. The man behind it was heavy, pale, and maybe 40. And like his sister, Joe Gordon was overbearing in a hurry. This, Marlowe, is the bag. These, the papers. Stocks, bonds, and mortgages. In themselves, worthless to anyone else, they're non-negotiable. But as information to my competitors, they're priceless. Satisfied? More or less. Meaning what? Exactly what is your line, Mr. Gordon? Oh, I'm a broker. One who bets on long shots. When they come in, I don't like to split with the boys who sit in their hand. Mm. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. I've got some time to kill before I fly back. Do I take the bag now or later? You take the bag now, Mark. Okay. And uh, don't let go of it until you're with my sister in L.A. 
I'm paying you money to stay away from my enemies, not to shop for trinkets. Oh, oh and uh, incidentally, my enemies also play rough. So watch your step and act smart. Real smart. I still had two hours to kill when Gordon locked the bag and handed it to me after dropping the key in his pocket. So I decided to take a room there at the Granada Hotel, shave, shower, and stretch. The sleepy clerk in the lobby was not in a hurry, nor did he hear anything I said the first time. So when I finally got to my suite on the second floor, which had as much elbow room as the inside of a lifesaver, 30 of the idle minutes were already gone. I locked and bolted the door, checked all the windows carefully, and then peeled off my shirt, broke out my shave master, and reached for the knob on the bathroom door. But I never made it. Because as the door swung open, I caught a glimpse of a fist the size of a cantaloupe starting from my jaw. Oh! I'll stay right there, Buster. The first time I swing, the second time I shoot, and I do both good. Equal nice, huh? Everything all figured out ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, but it ain't very hard, Mark. Especially when the guy you're after shouts it all to a desk clerk. My error. Yeah. Which leaves just the three of us. Real cozy like. Three. You, me, and 120 grand here in this bag. Yeah, way off face, brother. This bag's got papers in it, nothing more. They belong to a businessman. <laughs> I said something? Yes, you're very funny. Look, Buster, Joe Gordon's no more a businessman, and his real name is Joe Gordon. So after I leave, you go back to Sam Dietrich in room 111 and tell him that Marty Stopka says thanks. For what? For the $120,000 I've been waiting two long years for. And also tell him and Gigi Ganther, who might still be around, that Stopka had it all figured. Like you say, Marlowe, ahead of time. I don't follow you, bud. You're not supposed to. Just turn around, face the wall, and listen carefully. You tell Sam Dietrich that I knew he'd pull something like this just as soon as he got back into circulation. You got that? Yeah, yeah. Word for word, stop again. Yeah. Now all you have to do is remember. When Marty Stopka said remember it, he put that cantaloupe with fingers in the small of my back and shoved hard. By the time I got to my feet again, both he and the black bag were gone. That made Joe Gordon or Sam Dietrich my best bet. So I took the stairs to the ground floor fast and raced to the end of the corridor in room 111. When I threw the unlocked door open, I found something I hadn't counted on. A curtain flapping in the breeze of an open window and nothing more. The desk drawers, the closet, the bureau empty. And on an end table next to the telephone, a bus schedule unmarked. At that, I was beginning to get very mad at a private detective with public patsy named Philip Marlowe. Then the telephone rang, and when I answered it, the operator said that she had a long-distance call for Joe Gordon. I said, thanks, I'd take it. Hello? Sam, this is Kay. I... Marlowe? Yeah, honey, Joe Marlowe is in Brother Gordon, remember? Oh, I can explain all that, Marlowe. Oh, sure, sure, baby, but not now, later. Later, after you've had a chance to think up a few more lies. All right, all right. So I didn't tell you the whole story. What's the difference? Did you get the bag? I did, but I didn't get to keep it very long. Something ugly named Stopka wanted either it or my life, so I made a quick decision. Stopka has the bag. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, isn't it, though? Huh? One thing, baby. I'm the decoy with suitcase for some kind of shenanigan that's wrapped around 120 grand, which you and Sam Dietrich have. And there's a trio in the act. Namely, Sam Dietrich, Marty Stopkin, one Gigi Ganther. Gigi? Marlowe, have you seen Gigi? Uh, have you, Marlowe? Maybe yes, maybe no. Now, why don't you come clean? Admit you're happy that Stopkin got the suitcase from me while Sam beat it out of an open window. That my part of the job is over with. Come on, baby, talk. All right. I'll make it short and to the point. You got $200 for doing nothing. Out of that, 60-odd went for an airplane ticket. The rest is yours, right? Go on. There's no need to, Marlowe. 
I'm finished, and so are you. So why don't you just be a good fellow and keep the change? So long, sucker. When Kay Gordon hung up, I slammed the phone down, counted ten twice, and went back to the unhappy business of getting mad at Marlowe. But again, I was interrupted. This time, it was a newspaper, the Phoenix Herald. Sticking far enough out of the wastebasket under the telephone to expose the dateline, which made it exactly a week old. I picked it up and saw the two inches of story circled in pencil and slug. Five released from state penitentiary. And that's Sam Dietrich, 41 of Los Angeles, who was arrested in Lonesome, Arizona for the armed robbery of a general store in February 1947, also was released today. Now everything was beginning to add, with one high-priced exception. Very few general stores in towns called Lonesome keep 120,000 bucks in the till, even on a busy day. So I headed for the office of the Phoenix Herald and the chance that I could learn something about the cash involved from newspapers that were two years better than one week old. Thirty minutes later, I was in the back shop of the Herald receiving facts willingly supplied by a sandy-haired liner-type operator with a sad face who had never heard the word forget. That's right, mister. It was the Second National Bank of Land Company here in town. Uh, held up at 1.10 p.m. February 7, 1947, by three men who took $120,000 in unmarked cans, 20s, and 50s. One was badly wounded and running gunfight, but they all got away clean. No arrests, no suspects? Other than the usual rigmarole of trying to pin the job on every two-bit stick-up man hauled in the next six months, no. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No, thanks. I don't think... Say, wait a minute. Lonesome, Arizona, that unmarked bus schedule... Tell me, do you happen to know where something called Lonesome is, and if so, how a guy could get there if he doesn't have a car? Sure. It's 87 miles west of here, and the bus will do the trick. But not anymore today. Oh. Uh, the only bus left an hour ago. And uh, now, young fella, you tell me something. What in Sam Hill is Lonesome and a bus departure got to do with a bank robbery was pulled two years ago? Where I stand right now, Dad, I can't say. When I get the Lonesome, ask me again. I may have the answer for you. I was 30 minutes renting a car, an hour and 30 minutes getting to Lonesome, population 802. I drove without seeing anything that could possibly be mistaken for Sam Dietrich. And I was about to turn back when I saw something that brought my right foot down hard on the brake. It was a brand new green mash standing outside a motel. California license plate. I got out of my car and got a look at the registration card wrapped around the steering wheel. It said Catherine E. Gordon. The motel only had three cabins to show any light. The first belonged to the manager and the second to Kay. Close to an open window, I saw the man Kay was talking to. It was an ex-convict and part-time broker named Sam Dietrich. All right, all right. So Marlon knows he was set up for Marty Stavka. Who cares? We're here and so far Stavka isn't. And even when he does show, we'll be gone with the real black bag safe in our hands. Yes, but what about Gigi, Sam? I told you Marlon mentioned his name. And I told you to forget it. Marlowe must have been swinging in the dark. Gigi can't be alive, Kay. He was badly hurt when Stop and I got clear of the bank. But why wasn't his body found? I don't know, Kay. I've told you that a thousand times. <sighs> now, now, look, honey, why don't you just relax and think of us a little, huh? <laughs> Gigi's dead, baby. There's only you and me. Sam, you know how I feel about that. I love Gigi. But the only reason I'm helping you, I don't want anything to do with this money. I only want to know for sure about Gigi. Okay, okay. Hey, did you get a line on Leland Mills, the name that was on that mailbox two years ago? Uh, 
Yes, yes. He owns the place and lives there alone. A, a once upon a time small ranch on the last block in town coming apart at the scene. Mm-hmm. What about Mills himself? He's an old duffer, maybe 50. Lives close to the fireside, day in and day out. <laughs> Good. That means I can handle him without any trouble. And now, look, baby, it's uh, seven now. At nine, this town will be fast asleep, and at ten, I'll take care of everything. So, uh, why don't you just curl up there on the couch and think about nice things? Oh, nice things like what? Well, like the money I hid at Leland Mills' place five hours after the boys and I took that bank. (laughs) The $120,000 that's soon going to be back here with me where it belongs. I took my cue and left because one Leland Mills was a man to be forewarned while 10 o'clock was still three hours away. I was 10 minutes finding his place, which was on the edge of town, and another two locating the doorbell, which was the kind you pull to start a bunch of jingling inside. It was three pulls later before the door creaked slowly open, and what had to be Leland Mills stood in front of me. He was shaggy, gray hair curling on the sides of his neck, a face with a thousand crisscross wrinkles and dirty old clothes. Everything I'd expected with one exception. Gripped firmly in both hands and pointed directly at my head was a long, long rifle. Who are you? Uh, Mr. Mills? Maybe. Well, I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, also someone who knows that there's $120,000 in cash hidden here on your grounds. $120,000? To the penny, yes. Two years ago, Mr. Mills of Phoenix Bank was robbed by three toughs named Dietrich Stopka and G.G. Ganther. G.G.? That's a queer name. It's not important, old man, but this is. Now, somehow or other, that stolen money was hidden here, in or around your place. Mm. And tonight, one of those men is due back to collect. That, of course, means trouble for you. You think we should call the law? No, no, not yet. If we play it smart, we can get the dough spotted first and at least one of the three. All right, Mr. Marlowe. If you're sure of what you're saying, I only hope you are. Oh, I'm sorry about this gun here. I don't like poachers on my land. Yeah, we all have our pet peeves. Now, Mr. Mills, I want you to sit tight till I get back. And no matter what happens, don't open that door for anyone. Have you got that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Where are you going? To town. Check on the only two things that can possibly give us any unexpected trouble. One, a nasty man named Marty Stopka, and the other, a guy I've never even seen. The elusive Mr. G.G. Ganther. I left Leland Mills standing in the doorway and worried my way back to town. If Stopka and G.G. Ganther had no more trouble getting lonesome than I did... A reunion about as quiet as a truckload of hot dynamite was due to take place any minute. I passed the motel where Kay and Dietrich had holed up and saw that her car had been moved into the stall between cabins and draped with a blanket to hide its California plates. So they were thinking along the same line that I was. At the hub of town, I parked and started to case the lively spots on Main Street, which took me all of ten minutes at a slow walk. But a short side-of-the-mouth conversation with a couple of resident sports revealed that the local undergrounds came from the Red Dog Cafe, a warped wood two-story wiki-up on the one side street in town. It was operated by a hard-bitten blonde, 160 pounds of western motif, complete with Stetson, red flannel shirt, hickok belt, blue jeans, and the name, Flora. She sat at a table at the back of the barroom, lending a cynical ear to nobody else but my old pal, Stopkin. I walked up behind him, and when he turned around, I hung one on him. A good one. Hey, jackass, what do you think you're doing? Sorry, Flora, nothing personal. Now, that's enough. Now, stop it, you hear me? No roughhouse in my joint. Come on, handsome, I mean you. Me? 
Why, Flora, how can you say that? I just came in to ask my old pal here some questions, that's all. Here we go, pal. Come on, sit up in that chair. Okay, okay, let me alone. See, Flora, the only way stop you here knows how to start a conversation. Bring him another beer, will you? It's all one got spilled. Sure, bright boy. When it's either you do tourists leave your beefs outside next time. Now, look, stop you. I want to know what happened two years ago on that highway out here. You guys split up, didn't you? You better talk, Stopka. All right, we split up. The heat was on bad, and Gigi was half dead already from a cop slug in his back. Leifick had all the dough, right? What do you think? I left him and Gigi off outside of town. I took the car to try to suck the cops away from him. We were supposed to meet later. But you kept going to save your own hide, didn't you? Certainly. It's going to pay off, sucker. You'll see. Uh-huh. Since the money was never found, you figured Dietrich hid it around here, and he's coming back to dig it up. Is that it? Keep guessing, Shamus. Maybe we ought to loosen your jaw. Yeah, yeah, stop that. Here for the bike, Sadie. I'll plug you. Well, a real genuine forty-four. What museum just swiped that from, Flora? Never mind. Got a legal right to defend the peace and quiet of my joint, and after twenty-two years in this dodge, I know how to do it. Now I asked you nice once, now I'm telling you. You ah. get out. That back door there. Hey, sure, I'll go, sister. Thanks for. Nothing. Hey, wait a minute, Flora. Don't let that look get away. Shut up. Now you sit down right there and count up to fifty, and you leave by the front. Quietly. Okay, you win. One, two, three. Flora, look out. He's back. What? What? Sorry, Eddie. Uh, you fucking bitch. I'll leave this cannon on the back steps. So long, Flora. We got out the back door and into an alleyway between the shacks. Stopka was still in sight but walking fast. And when I took after him, he saw me and started to run. There was a hard, flat sound like someone striking wet sand with a hammer. Stopka faltered and lurched up on his toes as if he'd suddenly changed his mind about running. At the same instant on a wall, even with him, I saw the shadow of a man holding a pistol with a long, awkward barrel. The hard, flat sound came again. Stopka curled up on himself and fell. And the shadow slid off the wall, disappeared. I ran for the wounded man, but by the time I got to him, there was no trace of the gunman. I rolled Stopka over. He was hit hard, slipping away fast. Silence. Gigi always used a silence. Punk Gigi. Dad, huh? You wise guys never know when to quit, do you? You're in real trouble now, handsome. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't do this. Come, I couldn't hear the shots, the silencer. Yeah, that's right. Trademark of a guy named Gigi Ganther. All I saw of him was a shadow on that wall there. Say, what kind of law have you got in this town, Flora? None. Except the highway patrol, they stop in every night. Okay, call them. Get them over here. This guy's Marty Stopka, wanted for a bank job, nearly two years old. No kidding. Who are you, his trainer? I'm a private detective who's got no business here, except I don't like to be pushed around. Now listen, do you know Leland Mills' place at the edge of town? Sure. Well, you get the cops out to Mills' place by 10.30, do you understand? That's where the big attraction's going to be, if I can keep Gigi in a silence of interfering again. Now let me down, beautiful. I won't let you down, handsome. For a city boy, you're all right. I stuck to a back road and drove with my lights out until I was a good, safe distance beyond Leland Mills Ranch. Then I hit the car in a dry gully and walked back. The house was dark and still. I thought once of what might have happened to Mills if Gigi had gotten there ahead of me. I kept in the shadows and worked my way across the yard to the back door. Who's there? Marlo. Open up. 
I was beginning to worry. It's pretty near 10 o'clock. Yeah, I know, I know. Seen anybody so far? No. Nope, not a soul. I've been watching close, too. Did you find the men, that G.G., that Stopka? Yeah, Stopka's dead and his killer's due to show up here any time now. Oh. We're going to have our hands full, I... Wait a minute, is that a car? Sure sounds like one. Yep. There, you can just make it out. Turned in down by the culvert and stopped. Yeah. I think a man got out. Yeah, yeah, there he goes, across the field there behind your shed. It's Dietrich. I'm going out now, Mills. You stay here. No, I'm going too. But that fellow's heading right for my water tank. All right, he's heading for your water tank. Don't get excited. You'll tip our mitt. I get this, Mills. You've got to stay here and watch for Gigi. He's bound to show up, and when he does, you better have that rifle of yours handy because he's a killer. You understand? Yep. Sure, I understand. Don't worry, Marlowe. I'll keep my eyes open. Don't you worry about a thing. I eased out of the door and started across the yard. I, I knew I was getting myself out on a nice, long limb. Leland Mills was about as reliable as William Tell with their hiccups, and the apple was on my head. It was too late to back up, so I skirted the barn, stayed below the crest of a low rise, moved toward the elevated water tank until I heard a shovel biting dirt. I got a comfortable grip on my gun and headed up over the rise to where I could see. Yeah, it was Dietrich, all right. It was bent over under the tank and working on a hole as if his life depended on it. He didn't even look up until I was almost on top of him. Well, who's, who's there? Who is it? Me, Mr. Gordon. Marlowe. Well, how did you get here? Wasn't easy, Sammy boy. But I had to come and apologize for losing your precious bag full of waste paper. You sure picked a dangerous time to show, sucker. You were fired once. Too bad you can't take a hint. Uh-huh. And being tagged as Apache is lousy for my business, Dietrich. You should have thought of that. Just leave your hands on that shovel handle, Sam, and keep on digging. Maybe I'll let you take a peek at that 120 grand before I turn you both over to the police. Go on, dig! No! no not so fast, Marlowe. Mills, I told you to stay in the... Hey. hey. That's quite a pistol. Don't move. Neither one of you. I kill you if you move. You, Marlowe, drop your gun. Drop it. <laughs> well, this is where it's been all the time. A hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I've looked everywhere. Every day for two whole years, but I, I never thought of looking here under the water tank. You mean you knew where the money was all the time? You lie, you lie. I'm the only one that knew that. Oh, no. One night, two years ago, I heard a noise in my barn. It was a man groaning. I looked in and I saw him. He was wounded. And I saw you when you come back from burying the money. I overheard the whole thing. You wouldn't tell them where you'd hidden it. You said you'd never tell anybody. But I was sure I could find it. And I looked everywhere except... Yeah, Mills, everywhere except here, under the water tank, where you buried Gigi's body after you killed him. And with his own gun at that. Oh, no, I didn't kill him. Dietrich here did. I only buried him so nobody would find out that him and Dietrich had stopped at my place. I almost went crazy looking for that money, but now I know where it is, and I'm going to have it. Well, you fool, you don't think I'd come out here with nothing but a shovel, do you? A friend of mine is right behind you with a gun in her hand. So come on, drop yours, Rube. <laughs> come on, come on, drop it. All right. Hey. That's an old trick, Dietrich. <laughs> Let him have it. Shoot, Kay, shoot. Didn't work, did it? I knew I'd have to kill you sometime anyway if you ever came back, so... You fool, Mills. I suppose that makes me next. Yep, Mr. Marlowe. I think it does. Think again, Mr. Mills. Who's that? Hey! You, you were there all the time? 
The district wasn't blocked. Oh, I love you, Kay, baby. And I'll take the gun now, Milk. Turn it loose. Come on, I'll break your arm. There. That's better. I'll look after this gun until the police get here. And uh, look after this one, too, Marlowe. I haven't got the courage to use it anyway. I couldn't even shoot Sam Dietrich with it. He's the one I wanted to use it on. Why? Because of Gigi? Yeah. Because he killed Gigi and lied to me. I promised to help Dietrich only because I figured all three of them would show up here. Sam Stopka and... And Gigi. That way I hoped to find him again. You were right, baby. All three of them did show up. Only this time they finished their job. For good. It was 10.30 on the nose when we got back to the house. And the highway patrol had just pulled up. So the question and answer period started. And by the time it was over... All the field work finished up, four hours plus had gone by. It took some fast conversation, a lot of promises to stay handy, but finally, Kay was left with me. After all, her only real mistake had been falling in love with the wrong kind of a guy. When the last patrol car drove away, the desert was suddenly very still. The stars were small and sharp in the clear sky. The air was cold. Maybe that was why Kay Gordon trembled. Marlo, I... I'm sorry about all this. I got you into it, remember? Mm-hmm. You also got me out of it, Kay. Well, I can forget about Gigi. Now that I know for sure what happened. <laughs> and all because of a jerk named Leland Mills. No, Mills was a desperate guy, Kay. After he buried Gigi, he just about went nuts trying to find the money. When he finally realized Dietrich was the only one who could lead him to it, he shot Stopkin and would have killed anybody else. Keep him from interfering with Dietrich until he uncovered the hiding place. You know, in a way, Marlowe, it was a horrible trick of fate. They both picked the same place to bury things. Not really. Mills and Dietrich had the same jobs to do, under the same conditions. They each had to bury something in a hurry and in the dark. So both of them picked a spot where the ground was soft and one that was clearly marked at the same time. Under the water tank. Yeah. And it... Marlo, I'm kind of scared. I don't like this place. This spooky little town. The end of nowhere. Yeah. I wouldn't be caught dead here myself. Let's go, baby. I walked here to a car. Started it safely on our way. So long. Sucker. She waved once. And drove down the road and out of sight without looking back. Soon even the sound of the motor was gone. And a long night. And a strange reunion. And now two lonely lights were the only sign of life in lonesome Arizona. I stood on the empty highway for a few minutes. And listened to the immense quiet of the desert. Then I went back to my rented car and headed for Phoenix. And a plane. Oh. A startled corpse, a blue-eyed woman, and a cryptic message scrawled by a dying man with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle that wouldn't fit together until I found out what was deadly about the orange dog. <laughs> 
From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Orange Dog. By six in the evening of a very slow day, I'd resigned myself to the business of no business. So I took my feet down from my desk, switched off the lights, and started out the door for home with the prospect of a nice, quiet evening ahead of me. But I didn't make it. Even as far as the door. Oh. Hello, Philip Marlowe. Marlowe, my name is Shirley Marlowe. I'm at 8412 Lost Hill, private residence. I want you to come out here right away. My sister is in a jam, nasty. Well, Miss Martin, as a matter of fact, I was just closing up for the night. Look, I was... you. I need the services of a private detective right now this minute. And I'm prepared to pay for it. There are plenty of others in town. Are you coming or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, and thanks for the reminder. That's me you hear sprinting up your front walk. That's much better. And Marlowe, bring your brains along. You're going to need them. And that was the end of my quiet evening. But I just couldn't resist those government engravings of Mr. Lincoln. So I drove down to Weston, turned off on Los Feliz, and found the number 8412. The yard was an overgrown tangle of perennial plants losing their battle with the weeds. <laughs> it was like a girl in a strapless evening gown with her hair up in curlers. However, I could see a light through the Venetian blinds and the doorbell work with a resonant two-tone chime that caused the door to open just far enough to allow a pair of eyes so blue they were almost purple to peek out of me. Yes, what is it? I, uh, I'm delivering that private detective you ordered. Oh, Marlowe, come in. Thanks. Sit down, won't you? Thanks again. All right, what's the next move? It's about my kid sister. She's involved with a man named Lou Horner, San Francisco broker. She's quite deeply involved, I'm afraid. Oh? You see, some very strange things are going on, Marlowe, and my sister is a naive kid caught right in the middle of it. Yeah, I see. What sort of strange things, Miss Martin? Well, to begin with, when I arrived from San Francisco today, my sister called me and asked me to meet her here in this house. When I got here, the lights were on, the radio was playing, and the front door was open. But the place was deserted. Whose house is it, Horner's? No, I think she said it belongs to a friend of his who's in Europe now. This Horner person uses it when he's in Los Angeles. Well, couldn't they have stepped out for a while? Mm-mm. You know, you don't look the type, Shelley, but maybe you're just panicking. Huh? No, I'm not being panicky. All right, all right. Where's the nasty jam? Right behind the couch. Take a look. Okay. But you know, I... Ooh. I see what you mean. Who is he, Shelley? How'd he get here? Maybe it's Horner. And I tried to search him, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't have helped anyway. Whoever shot him cleaned him out. No wallet, no papers, nothing. I found this magazine lying under his hand. Look here. Mm-hmm. He must have written this just before he died. What is that? Here. Oh. It says, call Marion tonight about the orange dog. For what? That's why I called you, Phil. Marion is my sister, and whatever the orange dog of foe is, it must be awfully important. 
We've got to find out what it means, Phil, for marrying folks. So far, it means murder, honey, and that's for the cops. No. Well, all right, Cole. But keep Marion's name out of it. A thing like this could destroy her. But look, maybe she pulled the trigger on our friend here. Maybe, but I don't think so. She's a sweet kid, Phil. Give her a break. If I'm wrong, I swear I'll help you bring her in myself. That's fair enough. Okay, Shelley, it's a deal. It makes just as much sense as the orange dog of pole, but no more. After I checked as far as I could on my client and set her home, which was the Villa 12 at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel, I ripped the general squeegee tire ad with a message scribbled across it out of the magazine, folded it up and stuck it in my pocket. Next, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide and told him where I'd found a body, probably named Lou Horner, leaving out all the details about Shelley, Marion, and the orange dog. Then I started out the door, but got back as the shadows slid across the walk. I caught a glimpse of a large, ugly head of long, dirty hair set on a small, ugly body that was moving fast. By the time I got out on the walk, long hair was already putting mileage on a green coupe with a broken taillight. It winked mockingly as it went out of sight. So I got in my car and headed for New Chinatown. It was the logical place to get some information regarding a Chinese dog. I saw a light filtering through a dingy window, illuminating the words James Tang, dealer in Oriental Curios. Inside the musty shop, a little man, dressed in a black kimono, drifted forward softly. Yes? I, uh, uh, think perhaps you can help me, huh? I am honored. To be able to help would bring fragrance of plum blossoms to my nostrils, carpet of rose petals to my humble floor, and a thousand blessings upon my head. That's very pretty. Tell me, what is the dog of foe? The dog of foe? Why? Why this? This fantastic creature here is called the dog of foe. His fierce eyes and snarling mouth to frighten away evil spirits from temples of Buddha. Why do you say called the dog of foe? Amateur collectors and auctioneers have named him. It sounds exotic to Yashtas. Actually, he is a lion. The lion of Korea. I see. Tang, would you happen to have an orange dog of foe? Very strange that you should ask that, my friend. Strange? Why? Reason number one. There is no authentic orange dog of hope. That's a good reason. Why not? Because to Buddhists, orange is colored sorrow. The piece you speak of could not possibly be authentic. What's reason number two? You are second person to inquire after this non-existent orange dog of hope within the last few minutes. Was it an ugly little man with long hair? Quite contrary. It was very pretty girl with short hair. Was her name Marion? She made point of not leaving her name. Now it proves something. However, my friend, old Chinese proverb, loosely translated, says, a little knowledge is the instrument of a fool. There were nine other curio shops in the neighborhood, so I started making the rounds for the non-existent orange dog of foe and the girl who was interested in one. From the first three shops, I got a fast horse laugh in the fact that the girl was still ahead of me. The next two netted an insult apiece and a total blank on the dame. 
And from the six called Saxons, a glossy, well-ordered place on West 7th Street, the only effect was a coldly curious raised eyebrow. The man in front of me, whom I took to be Mr. Saxon himself, was a gaunt, white Russian, with a high, naked head the color of warm paraffin. The slender fingers played nervously with each other as we talked. The orange dog of four. Yes, I have heard of such a piece, I think. It would be fortunate. Probably. This is your business. Who has it, Mr. Saxon? Can you tell me? No, no, I'm sorry. I believe I heard this orange dog mentioned just once somewhere down in the village. But I'm sure I could never remember who spoke of it or when. No, no idea of its value then, huh? Now that you mention it, I seem to remember the figure 20,000. You mean yen? How much in American money? I'm speaking of American money. It would be an importation from China, you know. How could it be worth that much? It's not even authentic, Mr. Saxon. Authentic? <laughs> you seem to know a good deal more than I about this orange dog. Possibly one would have to see it to appreciate its value. Yeah. Tell me, has a girl been in here tonight looking for this orange dog? A girl? I know. Know anybody named Marion? Marion. Marion. No, there is no one in my acquaintance by that name. But why do you ask? Because Marion has quite an interest in the orange dog. I have a feeling they'd make a great team if we could get them together. I see. And what is your name, sir? It's not Fu Manchu, Mr. Saxon. Good night. Saxon's expression didn't change. I turned and walked out of the place, and then because with both of us using double talk, the conversation was bound to deteriorate. At least I had found out that the orange dog before existed was going for a very high figure, especially for a phony. And it didn't take enough backers to figure out that Saxon knew more than he told me. Well, I started up the sidewalk for the next brick of brack emporium when I saw something parked on the side street which brought me to a halt. It was that green coupe with the broken tail light. I went over to it, found it empty, and stuck my head inside to check the registration card for Longhair's real name. Yeah, it was a very foolish move because Longhair at that very moment prodded my kidney with the muzzle of a thirty-eight. And neither he nor the gun had a sense of humor. All right, Mr. Wise Guy, come on, walk. You and me are going up the alley here. What's the matter? Don't you feel at home in the light? Shut up. I don't like it much anyway, so you better ease off with the smart sense. Okay, this will go far enough. Well, Mr. Wise Guy, did you find what you're looking for? You mean the orange dog, Shorty? The answer's no. The orange dog? So that's where the plates are. What plates? You're working for a hunter. You don't know what plates. Look, chum, when you get your next haircut, have your brains dusted off. Nobody works for Horner anymore. Horner's dead. Thanks, since when? What's the surprise act for? You saw the body. You were sneaking around that house on Los Feliz. In fact, you might have killed Horner yourself. That body wasn't Horner. Why, Horner's three times the size of that guy on Los Feliz. He's bald. Also, he's so dumb he can't remember his own phone number. I'm looking for all that, but I told I was in short. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I don't want to... Man, I'll blow your brains out. All right, now, come on, Mr. Wise Guy. Tell me what Horner's got on his mind. You know, all right. I saw you taking orders from his girl. You mean Shelley Martin? Who else? Thought maybe you meant Marion. Marion? Who's Marion? Shelley Martin's sister. And don't let her worry you. Marion's got the orange dog eating out of her hand. They don't say. It ain't funny, mister. It's just peculiar. Because Shelley Martin don't have a sister, I know. So it seems like you're a very mixed-up character. In fact, Mr. Wise Guy, you're so mixed up, you're no good to me at all. So get over there with the rest of that.
I took my time getting up. The dirty, long-haired little man was gone. My head ached from the rap he'd given me with a pistol barrel. And I was disgusted with myself. Dry, dirty, disgusted like a drunk at sunrise because a nasty little jerk with an oversized head and a blue-eyed dynamo with auburn hair had me jumping through hoops like a trained ape. I stood in the alley and swore at myself until the futility of that routine dawned on me. Then I decided to go hunting. But I made one stop first at a telephone to at least get Ibarra off my conscience. Tony Barra. Hello, Lieutenant. I just found out that body on Lost Fearless isn't Horner. I knew that an hour ago. Huh? The body isn't Horner. Horner is no broke. He's a count. Big one. Oh. The dead man was a treasury agent named Slade who was closing in on Horner. So if you've got anything I haven't told, well, you better get it off your chest. At this point, it's a pleasure. A girl named Shelley Martin's calling the signals about now, and she can be found at Villa 12, Wilshire Gardens Hotel. Yeah, hurry. You'll just about meet me there, Ibarra. Now, wait. Suppose you go alone and find out what you can first. That's a switch. I'll follow in half an hour. Let's not freeze her off, Marla. Let's keep her talking, okay? Okay, Barra. That's easy for her. She's got a forked tongue. Only this time it's going to wag strictly on the straight and narrow. I guarantee it. And I pointed my car toward the Wilshire Gardens and a beautiful liar named Shelley Martin. I was sure of two things. The plates that long hair had wise cracked about just before he piled me into a row of garbage cans were the engraved kind that counterfeiters used to make money the easy way. And second, both long hair and Lou Horner were racing for the plates as well as the orange dog which could be one and the same thing. But 20 minutes later, as I pulled up near Villa 12, which was strips of yellow light and raised voices drifting out of half-open Venetian blinds, I forgot about the gentleman involved and concentrated on a lady who didn't have a sister called Marion. I went around to the back of the villa where I found the service door unlocked and the kitchen beyond dark. And when I entered and quietly moved to a spot near the living room where I could see Shelley snapping at a pompous, excitable man with a red face... Right, I figured that a little eavesdropping might pay I'm here in Los Angeles. Is there anything wrong with that, Mr. Horner? Yes, everything. Why, I wouldn't even have known you were in town if I hadn't gone back to the place in Los Feliz where I saw you and some man having a delightful little chit-chat over the body of that tea man. Trashing? Yes. Is that who he was? A meddlesome fool I caught snooping through my papers. Then, then you killed him, Lou. Of course I killed him. I had to. Now stop asking questions and get out of here. Because this is business, not pleasure, Shelley. And that leaves no room for you. Or Marion. Ma- what do you know about Marion? Not enough. But what I do know, I don't like. Look, Lou, who is Marion and what does she mean to you? Marion means money to me, Shelley. Nothing more. So just leave me alone here so that I can make a call according to schedule. A call about... Lou. What's the matter, Shelley? Behind you, Lou. They're in the garden. Lou! <laughs> Crashed through a closed window, didn't stop until it got to Horner, who grabbed at his chest and dropped to the floor even before the glass quit flying. And by the time I got outside to where the shot had come from, I found nothing but a little wind. I got back to Shelley and the blood of a tweet on the carpet. Horner was already dead. Marlow. Marlow, the man out there was Henry Peel. Peel? Something in long hair and dirty clothes? Yes, I met him in Horner's office once. Lou said he was a broker from Chicago. Come on, both Peel and Horner are counterfeiters. What? Blue, a counterfeit. That's right. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows, honey. They mean nothing. But, Marlowe, I swear I never knew that Horner was anything but a broker. A broker maltreating poor sister Marion? You're a liar, Shelley. About Marion, yes. I haven't even got a sister. 
But from there on out, I'm telling the truth. And tell some more and fast. All right, here it is. Lou Horner's been my boy. And, uh, checkbook? For the past year and a half. But about a month ago, he suddenly stopped being very attentive. And I couldn't figure out why. So you decided to keep your big blue eyes wide open, huh? Exactly. And it paid off. Because I found out that, one, he had taken better than $20,000 out of his bank account. Two, that he was coming down here to Los Angeles. And three, that an item named Marion might be beating your time. Yes. And that part of it upset me plenty. Until ten minutes ago. But then I found out that Horner here was a murderer, and that, Marlowe, I don't bother. Three cheers for the all-American girl. Oh, skip it, Marlowe. I'll live my way, you live yours. Don't worry, honey. Nobody wants to change places with you. Hey. Hey, look. Why does Horner wear a little rubber band on his little finger, do you know? Oh, he had a bad memory. He used every kind of gadget in the books to keep himself from forgetting things, especially numbers. Well, yeah. oh, for example, that rubber band might mean ten o'clock. How do you figure like five and five. The fingers on each hand, reading from left to right. Use things like that. Mm. Wait a minute. Hmm? Horner was going to make a call to Marion just now, and the message the T-man left was... Call Marion tonight about... About the orange dog of bull. Shelly, baby, where's your phone? Fast, come on, it's quarter after ten already. What's out there in the hall, Marlon? What are you talking about? A line, honey, a line on your ex-sister, Marion. This is Mr. Saxon. Uh-huh. Uh, Lou Horner, Mr. Saxon. I, I, I know I'm some 15 minutes late with this call, but I'd still like to see you about the orange dog of Poe. Certainly, Mr. Horner. The orange dog is here, waiting for you. Good. I'll be right over. Who is Mr. Saxon? A man very close to a lot of trouble, Shelley. Now, look, you wait right here for the law, and in particular, one Lieutenant Ibarra. Tell him nothing but the truth about Horner and what he meant to you in dollars and cents, and you may be all right. But where are you going, Marla? To a curio shop on West 7th Street to see, among other things, the orange dog of Poe. You are the Mr. Horner who called? Yeah, yeah. Also the one who was here this afternoon, you remember? Oh, yeah. yeah well, I, I'm sorry I didn't call you at ten, Mr. Saxon, according to schedule. I hope it hasn't inconvenienced you. No, that's quite all right, Mr. Horner. One moment, sir. What's the matter? Is anything wrong tonight? Seem on edge, Mr. Saxon. I am. So please, Mr. Horner, don't make a single stupid move. What? Wait a minute. Why the gun, Mr. Saxon? I promise not to bite the orange dog. You won't even touch the orange dog. Now, who are you? Well, we've been all through that. I'm Horner, Saxon. Lou Horner of San Francisco. No, you're not. Horner would have had no reason to wander around curio shops as you did this afternoon, asking any and everybody about the orange dog. Now, once more, who are you? And where is the real Lou Horner? All right, we'll take him in that order. I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, and Lou Horner's a corpse. Ooh. But also, I'm a good friend of yours, Saxon, because I'm going to give you a little bit of advice for free. Call it quits, Buster. You're licked. What are you talking about, Marlowe? A tea for treasury man named Slade. Before he died, Saxon, he talked. I see. And believe me, he said enough to put you away till orange dogs were as popular as lightsabers. And what do you say, Saxon? Do we play it smart? Very well, Marlowe. We will play it smart. My kind of smart. Now, turn around and walk through that curtain there. I want to show you something. Orange dog, maybe? Yes. The orange dog of Paul. 
and I want you to see it for yourself before you die. Saxon said die like it already happened. After he relieved me of the comforting bulge of the gun in my pocket and marched me to a large, windowless room that was a little darker than the lining of an eight ball, he told me to stand very still. Then he turned on a single lamp that rested on a large, scarred table. And next to it, an ordinary shipping crate and cushioned on all sides by white wrapping paper, I finally saw the orange dog of foe. It was a porcelain lion, pop-eyed, majestic in a crazy way. And also it was colored orange, bright and clear. Now that I'd seen it, I knew that the next move was Saxon's. I turned to face him. It was then that I noticed the black curtain behind him moved slightly. And long hair quietly stepped into the room. This Mr. Saxon did not know. Well, Marlowe, now that you have seen the orange dog for your first and last time, what do you think of it? He thinks it's just jet. Dead him, mister. Now drop your gun before I blow the top of your head off. Go on, drop it. It's better. Now sit down there and stay put. You, Marlowe, get across the room. Okay. Thanks for showing up, Peel, before Saxon here ran out of small jokes. Okay, yourself, Marlowe. I didn't just show up. And right behind you all the way, that's how I work. So what do you want, Peel? A couple of very fine and great plates that I've been after for six months now. Plates which could be in the orange dog of Poe? No place else but. But you think that maybe the late Mr. Horner wanted as an ornament. But that's all it is. There are no plates in the orange dog. It is only a collector's item. Now you're a liar, Saxon. And I know the best way to prove that. Marlow. Put that thing up and toss it against the wall. No, no, no. I tell you, there's nothing in it. Toss that Marlow. Go on. Okay, Peter. <laughs> ah. Now we'll see who's right about that. Please. See it. Nothing, huh, Peter? Ah. Nothing. All right, Saxon, get up. I want to know what a place are, so I'm going to count to three. That's how long you have to live if you don't tell me. No, no. Peter, believe me, there are no plates. What? Oh. Hold it, Peel. Wait. Here are the plates. Here. In this jewel box. Look, right here. Under your Is he... Is he out, Marlowe? Yeah, he's out. All right. They took a light with him, too. Is there center of the lamp in here? No, no, that isn't. Nor is there another gun. Why, you stinking little... Wait a minute. Those sirens, Saxon, they're heading this way. Police? Yeah, the police. Looks like sooner or later everybody gets together in the back room at Saxon. But and everybody stays here, so I'll take this wrapping paper and leave now. Wrapping paper? The stuff that was around the orange dog? Yes, a sample of the best grade of counterfeiting paper made, Marlowe. And that's what Warner was supposed to buy, not plates. Those he got a month ago. Still makes you a crook, Saxon, and one who'll never get past the front door. Oh, no, we'll see about that. Marlowe! <laughs> Keep shooting, Saxon, in the dark. You got four shots left. You filthy mother! Only one now, Saxon. That's number six. You're through, Saxon. By the time he borrowed his boys, plus a half a dozen very anxious team men got into the room. Saxon was already coming apart at the seams. After a half hour of steady questioning, he split wide open. He led us all to a basement hideout where the team men went wild over a few thousand sheets of A1 counterfeiting paper. But an hour later, after Peel, who admitted murdering Lou Horner, and Saxon, who was ready for the nearest straitjacket, were both in the lockup, 
There was still the problem of the glib lass from San Francisco. But finally, when Shelley, Lieutenant Ibar, and I stood under the green light of the globe in front of the police headquarters, I knew that the girl who technically was only guilty of withholding information from the police was not going to spend any time in the pokey. Because, after all, I was more or less guilty of the same thing. Besides, Lieutenant Ibar was still interested in the others. Well, now, it looks like the whole business actually boils down to a single transaction between Clay Saxon, who had the counterfeiting paper, and Lou Horner, who was supposed to buy it. That's right, Ibarra. But Horner, who must have made its contact with Saxon via some middleman in San Francisco, only had a telephone number and the password, the orange dog of Poe, to work on here in L.A. But how'd you get hold of that number, Phil? From the message the T-man left before he died. You mean you actually called someone named Marion? No, honey, I just dialed Marion. M-A, Madison, R-I-O-N, 7466, Madison, 7466, you get it? Yeah. <laughs> Another one of Horner's screwy memory tricks, like the rubber band on his ten fingers. Hey, that's pretty good, Phil. Oh, it's an old gimmick, really. I read it in a dozen detective stories. Well, you know, maybe I ought to read some of those. <laughs> well, good night, fellow. Look for you tomorrow. Good night, Lieutenant. Now, Shelley. Do I, uh, do I show you the way home? Now, Mona, aren't you hungry or thirsty or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess I am at that. Well, I know just the place for us, darling. Oh? It's a cute little place right smack in the middle of China. <laughs> Well, Marlowe certainly had his work cut out and a couple of solid punches to his face in both these episodes. I tell you what, he'd give the Hulk a run for his money with the amount of abuse Marlowe endures. Mind you, I think his soft spot for women really demonstrates that great weakness of his. You know, blue eyes, a woman with attitude, and a killer right hook. So it seems... I hope you enjoyed today's episode, mates. Now, listeners, rate and review the podcast whenever you can. Show me some love. And a shout-out to you, Dylan, a listener who reached out to me via email asking me how they would leave a review. Firstly, thank you so much. And the best way to do this, folks, is to log into your iTunes account, search my podcast, and leave a review under Rate and Review. Yes, I know, mates, it's a pain in the butt with a couple of hoops, and not everyone has iTunes, so every single one that goes up there helps lovelies like you find this podcast. Thanks in advance for those that do. And if you're able to buy me a cup of tea a month, head on over to my Patreon page to do so at patreon.com forward slash sfgt. I want to thank the marvelous, the most incredible queen of cats, a goddess of feline grace, that is Maya, my old knighty titan. Your nickname today is Monocle Maya, the great gambler of New York. Thank you so much for your immense support, Maya. The past couple of episodes have seen subtle stings and synth pads introduced into each episode, and that's all thanks to you and my Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Today's episodes in particular, the old-time radio ones, are specifically supported by your donations, where I'm repairing as much as possible on each episode using the RX-9 Advanced Audio Repair Tools. A specialist kit that others would dream of when it comes to repairing audio. Again, all made possible by yourself and lovely patron supporters. You are a legend, Maya. Thank you so much. 
my white tea warlord, subterfuge solstra, thrifty with the cards and even thriftier when no one is looking, bedazzling people with card tricks and fooling those that just don't have a keen enough eye, a menace to some, a liberator to others. Thank you, Solstra, for your epic support. My white tea warlord Luxurious Lee, living luxuriously in the high-rises of New York capital, making his money selling information, secrets, and intelligence that others never seem to know where he gets those details from, his own secret in its own right. Thank you, Leza, for your awesome support, and it's always great to hear from you. You're brilliant, and don't you forget it. And my white to you, Warlord, Punctual Page. A chef by day, but a malicious maimer by night. Punctual Page earned her name due to the impact she leaves on her targets or marks in the underground, killing exactly when asked to and never missing a shot, even in the darkest of nights. Cheers, Page, for supporting me in the way you do. You are magnificent. And my epic, Pep in my step, Earl Grey enforces Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all. You are all amazing people. I'll be seeing you this Wednesday as always, and till next, we meet.